Welcome to the ETAP Podcast, a service of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Each month, we'll provide information and insight into environmental issues important to state transportation officials. Thanks for joining us for Ashto's ETAP Podcast. My name is Bernie Wagenblast. Since 2020, the Ashto Committee on Environment and Sustainability has held a weekly webinar series throughout the month of September, with each week's segment hosted by one of its four subcommittees. This year, when the Cultural Resources Subcommittee sat down to plan their webinar, it became clear there was one topic on everyone's mind, and that was post-World War II construction and what to do with it. At the end of World War II, a huge demand for housing ensued. With the help of the GI Bill and Federal Housing Administration loans, many returning soldiers were in the market for a new home. Construction boomed to keep up with demand, and now many homes across the country can be identified as post-war architecture. As those homes built in the late 1940s through the 1970s begin to age into potential historical significance, cultural resource practitioners have their work cut out for them. The Cultural Resources webinar on the topic eliminated the desire for more resources on how to best deal with post-war construction as a practitioner. As such, the subcommittee is conducting their own nationwide survey of the state DOTs on their post-war practices and protocols. Heading up that effort is Scott Williams, Cultural Resources Program Manager of the Washington State Department of Transportation. Scott joins us today to tell us about the project. Scott, welcome to Ashto's ETAP podcast. Thank you. Before we get into the post-World War II construction synthesis project, tell us a bit about the Committee on Environment and Sustainability's Cultural Resource Subcommittee and what you folks do. Okay. So what we do is we have, in addition to the yearly and summer meetings, we have a monthly phone call that all the, or however as many can get on that day, cultural (laughs) resources folks from the state DOTs, so archaeologists and historians, and Tony Opperman out of Virginia DOT is our chair. And so every month he solicits topics that are of interest to the members of the committee. So things that are ongoing within the states, items that might overlap into other states, questions, you know, hey, how are you guys doing this? What's a good solution? Here's something we've done that works. And then we have an hour-long phone call every month and we discuss those topics. So some months that phone call is packed with one topic that maybe everybody's jumping in on. Other months, we might have three or four topics. And some of those topics stretch on over multiple phone calls. Give me a sample of of some of the topics that you discuss, if you would. Okay. Things like historic bridges and what kinds of mitigation we can do for them. This particular post-World War II housing study was one issue that had come up repeatedly. How do we handle post-World War II not only residential housing, but commercial structures, because there's so much of it. Sometimes we'll talk about specific issues with our state historic preservation offices. Like we've had an issue with, we had to go to the keeper of the national register. How has that worked out for other people? Are there any tips somebody might provide when giving information for that? Tell us a bit about the genesis of this synthesis project, if you would. What inspired you and the Cultural Resources Subcommittee to take this on? It's had a pretty long genesis. It started just with different states starting to realize that when you get to the post-World War II construction boom in the U.S., you know, prior to 1940 or 1942, the U.S. was a fairly rural country. 
there were the big cities, you know, on the eastern seaboard, around the Great Lakes, and on the west coast. But most Americans lived pretty rural lives in houses that were dated to the turn of the century or the early part of the 20th century. And then with the boom after World War II, the U.S. moves into more of an international superpower. And manufacturing takes off, jobs take off, people move into urban areas. The number of built structures built between, you know, say 1950 and 1980, it just orders of magnitude larger than what had been built before in the mm-hmm. U.S. So when we're doing historic preservation, for example, if, if we have to treat structures built before 1950, in my part of Washington, there's not going to be a lot, to be honest. You know, we might have a project where we've, we're dealing with four or five structures. You get into that post-World War II period, and now you've gone from four or five structures to 100 because the National Register guidelines are structures that are 50 years old or older. So that now puts us into, what, 1972, all properties built from 1972 and before. And often for the DOTs, because the way our projects are structured, we'll look at properties that are 40 or 45 years old to account for that construction. So now you're looking at properties built 1977, 1982 that kind of thing. I was out of high school in 1982. So to me, it's like, boy, trying to consider those as historic properties, I really have to wrap my head around. The genesis of this project was, you know, we'd been discussing this on the CES monthly calls repeatedly. And then for one of the summer meetings, we decided we would talk to a couple of states that had specific methods they had developed or kind of alternative 106 procedures to deal with these properties. Some of the states have done statewide contexts for post-World War II structures, whether they're residential or commercial. So really it was to get, I think we had seven, seven or eight states, just to talk to all the other states about, hey, here's what we do. Here's where we've had some success. We do have a, a study and here's the link to it that, you know, it's online. You folks can look at it to get some idea of what was done. And several years ago for the NCHRP, a nationwide study was done on best ways to approach post-World War II housing. So one of the topics was how well has that study worked for the individual state DOTs? Those nationwide studies tend to be fairly broad. So we wanted to know, was it working for folks? And then once we had done that session, the idea came to Tony and I that, you know, we should really just do like a short synthesis of what are all the states doing and get that back out to the states to kind of give an idea because some aren't doing anything. And by not doing anything, I mean, they treat those post-World War II properties the same way they treat any other historic properties. Some states have very specific procedures for those. You talked about having difficulty wrapping your head around that. I grew up in a home that was built in the mid-1950s. I'm talking to you right now from a split-level house that was built uh-huh. in 1954. And I have difficulty thinking of this as a historic structure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, imagine that with a, you know, a house built in 1970. It's even worse <laughs> to me. <laughs> you talked about gathering information from the various state DOTs. How do most of the states that do have any kind of plan, how do they deal with their post-World War II structures? They usually have, they've done a statewide context where they've looked at these structures and they've come up with some historic contexts of what types of structures 
under terms of like criterion A, which developers maybe were important to the state, which sorts of subdivisions may have been built. You know, were there specific kinds that attracted certain groups of people like, you know, we're going to build this subdivision with shopping malls and sidewalks and schools to really attract people or lower lower income housing to get people in. So that kind of thing. So the states that have done that, some of them have also worked out agreements with their state historic preservation offices about how they record those structures. And again, because you might be going, you know, pre-1945, there might be five structures. Post-1945, there might be 200. And just the effort of fully recording those structures. Some states have, have worked out agreements with their state historic preservation offices where instead of doing, say, a full historic property inventory form that might be three or four pages long, they can do something like an Excel table, recognizing this subdivision has you know these four or six house types. By address, this house is this type. This house is that type. Does the house have integrity? Yes or no? Instead of going into the full multi-page explanation. You talk about some of the things that you found from various state DOTs. The state you're most familiar with, obviously, is going to be uh-huh. Washington State, since you work for Washington State DOT. Have you found Washington's protocols to be fairly standard? Standard in the way that we generally just follow the basic Section 106 process. We don't have a separate agreement with our SHPO about, like, can we do something different? with these properties? Can we record them at a a lower level of detail? Typically, our SHPO likes to see full recording done. So that was part of the thing that sparked my interest in this topic, was just watching other states go through and and having that realization that there was such a change in the country post-1945, 1950. Here in Washington, we haven't yet had a project where we've had to like say, we're going to build a new highway through the middle of one of these subdivisions. Typically, ours have been built through much older areas, you know, pre pre nineteen forty five. So for us, I would say, you know, our standard right now is we are pretty much doing the full one six evaluation at our state level for our shipo, doing the full historic property inventory forms. On the other hand, as you've looked at some of the different states, have you found any that have unique practices that perhaps other states could learn from? Yeah, I, I don't know that there'd be one that has like. A totally unique, but there are several where, like I said, they have come to agreements with their historic preservation offices that they can do a less detailed but broader level of recording. I'm trying to think off the top of my head which states, but there are several that have done these statewide contacts. So that right there gets them, instead of looking at every property that's post-1945, they know there are certain subdivision types or what those house types need to have National Register eligibility in, in terms of their integrity. Because, you know, that's the other thing, post-World War II, so many houses are built. And then, of course, kind of the post-World War II American idea was, you know, small nuclear families, people moving to get jobs, moving out of their hometowns, buying new houses every five years to sort of upgrade, and then upgrading their houses, you know, new vinyl windows, new roofs, adding garages and carports. So those original features of a subdivision that might have made it really recognize you were in the Happy Valley Orchard subdivision <laughs> because all the Happy Valley Orchard houses have X characteristics. Well, 
40 or 50 years later, 90% of those houses have changed something. So trying to picking out, okay, what are the features that are important to that historic significance? When this project is finished, Scott, how do you think that's going to help practitioners across the country in their work? Well, I'm hoping what we can do is if we can make a document that says, okay, here's how the 50 states handle these. And literally, alphabetically, here's the states. Maybe here's a table of the states that aren't doing something different. That those states that have good and effective practices in place, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. But for some of those states where maybe their historic preservation office is a little more hesitant to say, we want you to do something different as opposed to, or or maybe the, their SHPO's office is saying, no, we want full detailed recording. We don't care whether it's one structure or 500 structures. If the state DOT can go to the SHPO and say, hey, look, here's what California is doing. Here's what George is doing. And they've, they've had real success with this. The advisory council's happy. The National Park Service and the keeper are happy. Can we adopt some of these ideas? You know, maybe instead of less detailed recording, we're going to do a Excel spreadsheet. And it'll still have all the detail. It just has it in a slightly different format. So that's what I'm hoping, is it might help some of the states that need a different method to convince their own agencies and their state historic preservation offices. A couple of states have told me, you know, they do just standard 106. And because they're not doing huge, like new highways that are going through these post-World War II subdivisions, it, it's just not an issue for them. And they're happy with what they have. So for those states, great. You know, they can keep doing what they're doing or file this for future use in case they do get a project where they're going through one of these areas. I understand you're currently wrapping up this project. When do you project it will be finished? And once it is finished, how will states be able to access the information you've gathered? Wrapping it up is an optimistic term, you know, between the holidays (laughs) and projects I'm doing here, I'd still say I'm, I'm actually about halfway through the middle of it. I've got some of the initial states And so my next step is I really need to reach out to the state DOT cultural resources staff individually rather than like in a mass email and say, dear blank, how are you handling them in the state of blank? And try to get some answers back that way. And then I will collate all that information. I don't anticipate this to be a huge report because it will mostly be tables with some discussion. And once that information is put together, I'll have a couple of people peer review it just to make sure it's what we want. And then I believe the intent is for us to send it out through the CES committee to all the members there. Then at that point, I don't know if if Tony and I will be able to talk to like the NCHRP and have it put out kind of as a freebie, you know, a bonus study, Mm because we haven't asked for any funding for this. It's just us doing it on our own. But the the wider we could get it out, the better. So if we can send it out to every state DOT office and probably at least put it on a few of the state DOT websites, and then we'll just keep talking about it at the monthly CES meeting. So as new folks come in, new staff come into the state DOTs and they have a question about, gee, it really would be nice if somebody had looked at this. We can say, oh, we did. Here, here's the web link to the document. If any listeners would like to be involved with projects like this one or some of the other projects that the Cultural Resources Subcommittee is working on, how would they get in touch and what do they need to do? Do they need to be a member to get involved? No, they don't. So that committee meeting is open. 
folks can follow the subcommittee work and attend meetings without being members. So the easiest way is to send an email to Ashto and basically just ask to say, I would like to follow this committee and listen in and join in on it. And they can get on the, it's called the friends of the committee list. And then they'll get all those messages. Well, sounds very interesting. You've certainly given me a new perspective on the house that I'm living in, thinking of it as a historic structure, which uh, I never really considered before. But I think a lot of people maybe have a different perspective after listening to our conversation. Hopefully. Well, again, thank you so much. We've been talking with Scott Williams. He is the Cultural Resources Program Manager for the Washington State Department of Transportation. Thank you so much, Scott, for being on Ashto's ETAP podcast. Thank you, Bernie.